0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Persecuted the prophets who were before you.
1: Would you guys to finish this phrase for me? I'm sure you'll be able to do it. But slow and steady wins the, race. amen. Race, yeah. We know this phrase, right? It's fairly common. Uh, when you think about it, though, it is a pretty interesting strategy for a race, is it not? A race, which is literally a competition that rewards the fastest. Runner, really, the wisdom of this phrase is sort of bound up in that counterintuitive tension, if you know what I mean. If if you don't understand the tension of the phrase, the truth is you don't really understand the phrase. For instance, if you were just to look at two people who were running, uh, and, and one of them was running slow and steady, And the other was just barreling forward as fast as his legs would take them. You might think, looking at these two people, that it's the second one who would win the race. Would you you not? He must be doing it right, you may think, because he is going, well, faster, right? And that's how races work. But if the tale of the tortoise and the hare has taught us anything, then we know there's a whole other dimension that has to be considered and factored in here. And that is the dimension of time in this case. In a race, it is not enough to simply run fast uh, to win the race. You have to run fast for a while. (laughs) And thus, the hare, who may seem to be doing it right at first, is actually associated with sort of short-sightedness and folly because eventually he loses steam, he has to lie down and rest, he falls asleep. And then the tortoise, who seemed to be doing it wrong at first, eventually passes him and wins the race. But the point here is not, well, listen, the one who runs the slowest will win the race. That's not the point. That, actually, that misses the entire point. The point is that the best strategy does not always seem best at first but it will prove to be best in the end. There is a difference, right, between someone who appears to be doing it right at first and the one who actually proves to be doing it right in the end. And today we're going to see that this same kind of of counterintuitive tension actually very much applies to living here on earth for this kingdom of gods in heaven. At first... It may not seem best to live for God's kingdom here on earth. To many, it just seems really hard, actually, until that is we factor in this other dimension, uh, which we'll get to. But first, we need to talk about the overall structure of Matthew's gospel and where this new section we're beginning today, this famous Sermon on the Mount, sort of fits into the rest of the book as a whole. Uh, One scholar, Jonathan Pennington, has helpfully pointed out that the gospel of Matthew is kind of like a farm field with a bunch of crop circles in it. And the idea is that as you walk through the sort of stalks of corn, for instance, as you just read one story after another, it can be really hard to notice the big picture of what's going on in the whole book. The idea is that to make sense of the book, you really have to sort of zoom out to look at the whole thing from above. And it's not until you do it that way, really, that you see, oh, that's what Matthew is after here, after all. And so to do that, here's a graphic. To help us visualize the Gospel of Matthew in this way. I had some fun with the slides this week, I had to tell you. I hope you don't mind. Um, first, I want to point out the, the little red or pink section at the beginning and the end. We have a clear introduction and a clear conclusion. We've seen the introduction, it's a royal genealogy which announces Jesus as the ultimate king of God's people. And then the conclusion is a very famous text called the Great Commission. And in the Great Commission, he really announces himself to finally be this king. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he also says, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And so in a sense, in the structure of the book as a whole, it's as though in the beginning, we see that the king is here. And then in the conclusion, we're told the king is still with us. The rest of the book is basically organized around these five blue sections you see, which each represent a block of teaching from Jesus. It's as though in these blue sections the story stops and Jesus just starts talking to his disciples and instructing them. Uh, Most scholars refer to these sections as as discourse because they're basically one way. They're, They're just monologues from King Jesus to his disciples or to someone. And each of them ends with the same phrase, which is the clue to the structure of the book, It says, when Jesus finished saying these things, and then we're sort of back eventually into the stories. The white sections on either side of these teaching blocks represent the narrative, or just collections of stories from Jesus' life and ministry, and there does seem to be at least some relationship between these story sections and the teaching sections. Uh, The things that Jesus teaches in the Blue Discourse are typically explored in the white story sections that follow, which will be helpful, you can imagine, as we continue to go on in the book. Now, last week... We wrapped up that first white section of stories, which is all about introducing us to Jesus as God's beloved son and this heavenly king. And remember, the section ended last week with Jesus preaching this incredible message that we are to turn around and go the other way. We're supposed to repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven, he said, it's at hand especially now that he's here, it's at hand. And today, we begin this first blue section of discourse, the world-famous Sermon on the Mount, which occupies everything from chapter 5 to chapter 7, in which Jesus begins teaching his disciples how life works differently when we do actually follow him as king and live for this kingdom of heaven here on earth. That is the point of this entire Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is casting a heavenly vision for a new kind of earthly life. And when we We can see this, rather, again, also here by sort of zooming out to consider the structure of the whole Sermon on the Mount. Because when you do that, it's actually really interesting. When you see all the different parts that are there, uh, at the very center of this sermon is Jesus' famous teaching on prayer, the Lord's Prayer, which we just prayed together. And then if you look closely at that prayer, at the very center of that prayer, sort of the crown jewel of the prayer, and the crown jewel, I would argue, of the whole Sermon on the Mount, the peak, the summit of the mountain, Is this phrase, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? That is effectively the thesis statement of the the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, King Jesus, is trying to show us how life works when we do God's will on earth as God's will is done. Heaven, But as soon as you start reading the Sermon on the Mount, you notice something, right? It's pretty clear. It begins with this section that works very differently than the rest of the sermon. It starts with what we know as sort of famous literature, these Beatitudes. The Beatitudes clearly do not read like the rest of Jesus' teaching here in the sermon because there is a very clear formula to them. It's almost hard to miss as you hear them read. And this is a hint, really, that the Beatitudes are actually a different kind of literature. In fact, this phrase, blessed are the such and such, is actually a pretty common element of wisdom literature. The phrase is used regularly in the book of Psalms. It's used in Proverbs and even in some prophets. We actually saw it in in our call to worship today from Psalm 2. Blessed are those who take refuge in the Son. And, and most first century readers would have picked up on this and they would have immediately understood how these Proverbs basically worked. But for us, however, it's not quite so intuitive because we're not as familiar often with the idea that this is ancient wisdom literature. In, uh, so in ancient wisdom literature, this phrase, blessed are the such and such, it was a way of endorsing a certain way of life. Uh, it's almost as if the author is kind of looking in on someone's life from the outside and and saying to his readers, uh, uh, listen, this is how you do it. Uh, They've got it right. Blessed are these ones here. Are the Maulbergs here today? No? Anybody see the Maulbergs? Maybe not. Kurt is Australian. He's going to get a kick out of this because (laughs) one scholar basically compared this phrase to the Australian phrase, good on ya, (laughs) right? Good on ya, in other words, if you're poor in spirit, right? Good for you, you're doing it right. Now, reading the Beatitudes in this way, as wisdom literature that's describing a virtuous life, it's incredibly important because if we don't, we can easily miss the point, as many do, by assuming that Jesus is simply telling us how to live if we want God to bless us. Now on one hand, Jesus is certainly commending a way of life here, He absolutely does want us to live in this way. And he does even say that there is great reward for living this way. But if we stop there, really, we will be missing the most important dimension of these beatitudes. Because the point is not, well, listen, if if we all live in this way, then God will really bless us when we get to heaven. No, the point is that this is a blessed way to live here and now, even if it doesn't pay off until we get to heaven. The blessedness of this way of life, it's not always evident based on the earthly outcome of it. And and in this sense, this is not just any kind of wisdom literature. It really is, fancy word, eschatological wisdom literature, which just means it helps us to reconcile this life here on earth with the eternal life to come. It deals with this tension of the ultimate end and aim of all things. Now, now with that in mind, it's really not hard to see that this wisdom literature is eschatological. It's it's heavenly in nature. It's all to do with God's heavenly kingdom. And it's as we consider this heavenly dimension of the Beatitudes in relation to the earthly dimension that the power of them really becomes evident. It's like the lights kind of click on. It's like, okay, I get it. I get what's going on. I'm going to refer to this here as the Beatitude equation. I told you I had fun with these slides, okay? (laughs) Okay. Uh, There are clearly two parts to each of these beatitudes. The first part I'm gonna call, again, the earthly endorsement. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for instance. Again, he's using a common phrase to endorse this as a virtuous way of life. And you can see right there, the tension, right? There's this counterintuitive dynamic that comes into play because in most cases, the kind of life he's endorsing does not seem particularly pleasant, does it? And again, that's entirely the point. This is clearer with some Beatitudes than it is with others, but I'm convinced it's true of all of them, right? If Jesus just said, listen, guys, blessed are those who mourn, well, then the natural question would be, why? Why are they blessed? And therefore, without adding this second part of the Beatitude equation, most would reject it. They would say, why in the world is this a blessed way of life, right? I, I, I think I disagree. You know, I actually don't think that's a very blessed way to live. And the entire point of this second part of the equation is just that, is to fill in that gap. In each case, after Jesus endorses this earthly way of life, next he says, for, And then he proceeds to explain why that way of life he's just endorsed really is a good and a right way to live. And in each case, I want you to notice the reason he gives has nothing to do with the outcome of this living style of living here on earth. It has everything to do with some kind of a heavenly promise. This is how the Beatitudes work it's not until you add in this other dimension of the beatitude this this heavenly promise that you start to see oh this earthly way of life it it truly is good it truly is right it is blessed it is the heavenly promise which makes the earthly way of life worth endorsing does that make sense That, my friends, I'm convinced is the point of the Beatitudes. The claim of this text is this, church. It is best to live for the kingdom of heaven, no matter how it goes on earth. It is best. If we want to understand the blessedness of living for this heavenly kingdom, we cannot just look to how it seems to be going here on earth. We have to look to these heavenly promises. Now, you can imagine, that philosophy right there will become incredibly important later on in this story when Jesus tries to convince these disciples, blessed are the crucified. Church, now that Christ has come, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is. But if we are going to repent And follow this king and and live as citizens of the kingdom here on earth. If we are truly going to do that, Jesus wants us to know here. First, that is the best way to live. It is. But it often won't seem like it. So next, let's just consider what this blessed tension means and looks like in our daily lives. When we live for the kingdom of heaven here on earth, first, we'll notice, it may seem futile but will prove to be fruitful. It may seem futile, but will prove to be fruitful. Uh, One of the big implications of, of these Beatitudes is that pragmatism is completely opposed to the kingdom of God. It absolutely is. Pragmatism is the idea that if it seems to work, it must just be good, right? Those who are pragmatic only measure the value of something based on the outcome. Uh, blessed are the successful, the pragmatist might say, for psh, nobody can call them a loser, right? That's pragmatism. Blessed are the successful, nobody can call them a loser. Meanwhile, the entire point of these Beatitudes is that there's a huge difference between a life that seems to be going well here on earth and the life that is actually going well in a heavenly sense. Often the lives that are most successful from a heavenly perspective do seem futile from an earthly perspective. Let's imagine something goes terribly wrong in your life. Uh, Maybe someone you love either abandons you or even uh, dies in, in a very tragic but even seemingly avoidable sort of way, and it just, it just wrecks you. But another well-meaning friend keeps coming over, over and over again, to try and cheer you up. right? The instinct is understandable, is it not? Right? Who wants their friend to mourn? Who, who wants their friend to be lowly? Some people are so uncomfortable with sorrow that all they can think to do is to avoid it at all costs. They think well, look, what good is it going to do to go on mourning like this, right? How, how is that way of life going to bear any fruit, right? To them, it seems futile. It even seems maybe dangerous, right? If, if you give in to all this mourning and this poverty of spirit, your life, it, it, just won't, it won't be blessed. The problem is that they are not considering the very real, invisible, and spiritual significance of life. The truth is the effects of sin in a fallen world are deeply troubling. And therefore, there is something good and there is something right about these things, even if they seem futile. First, it's it's not futile to mourn today because in the end, we will be comforted once and for all. We see that. But you might think that means, well, then don't mourn. Right? Don't do it. But no, it doesn't. It actually frees us to mourn, with hope even. Meanwhile, if we want to know what's really futile, it's walking around a dark and fallen world with a cheap, fake little grin on your face, because truth be told, you are just in complete denial of the horrors of sin. That is not a blessed way to live, even if it may seem to be a bit more pleasant here and now. Church, don't be afraid to mourn with those who mourn. And don't be afraid to mourn yourself even. It is a blessed way to live, at least for now in a fallen world, even if some think it's futile. Or let's imagine you have two friends, uh, maybe here at church, Uh, or maybe even two members of your family who constantly are at each other's throats. Constantly. Anytime you talk to the one, all they do is grumble and complain about the other and vice versa. You seem stuck in the middle of this seemingly futile relationship that seems like it will never be marked by things like safety and security, intimacy and trust, and it's starting to stress you out. You might hear, blessed are the peacemakers and think, Yeah, right, right? Not in this case. If I keep trying to help these two reconcile, eventually all three of us are gonna hate each other, right? The instinct is understandable, isn't it? If you've ever tried to do a thing like that, it is really hard. But if we stop to consider this promise that someday, like Jesus himself, we will be called sons of God, us, sinful undeserving people ourselves someday we will enjoy the most safe and secure intimate and trusting relationship there will ever be with God of all beings even though we don't deserve it all of a sudden in light of that you can start to see the value maybe in sticking with those two friends and patiently pointing them to this promise of of adoption into God's heavenly family by grace alone. Maybe that is a way forward here somehow, guys, maybe, right? Insisting that even if this relationship never looks the way they'd hoped that here on earth, that they still have this great heavenly hope of safety and security and intimacy in God's heavenly family. Church, living for this heavenly kingdom does seem futile, often. And from an earthly perspective, frankly, it may prove to be futile just here on earth. It may never look the way we hope here on earth, but it is best to mourn with those who mourn. It is best to be poor in spirit. It is best to be peacemakers here on earth, no matter how it goes, because in the end, this way of life will prove to be incredibly fruitful. Next, this way of life, it may seem naive, but will prove to be wise. It may seem naive, it'll prove to be wise. Uh, it's not hard to see this way of life Jesus is commending here really puts a premium on things like holiness and purity of heart, moral purity. And if you've ever been a Christian for any period of time and actually tried to live in this way in this world, you probably know that many people tend to scoff at that sort of thing, don't they? Oh, you think your body's a little temple? And it really matters who you make love to, right? Okay, come on, right? Oh, you think God has roles in mind for women, and for men, and and for families, and you should actually factor all that stuff into things like career. Give me a break, right? You think that little embryo, oh, you think that's sacred, don't you? The moment that sperm fertilizes the egg. Come on. Oh, you think Jesus, you think Jesus is king? Don't, he is, isn't he? And that really matters, doesn't it? Well, I wish I could vote for him, right? You hear hear this cynicism. To many, it will seem naive to take God at his word and to live as if we are truly accountable to him. It will seem naive. And we do. We kind of chuckle at these things, don't we? As we hear them, we can relate. But could it be that in some ways these things are funny? Because again, the instinct can be understandable. It often doesn't seem like it will pay off to prioritize holiness and moral purity. It seems like we're going to miss out, for instance, on a guilt-free life of pleasure. It seems like God's design for family is really going to limit our job satisfaction. It seems like keeping this baby is going to make life really, really hard for everybody here. And it seems like if we don't cling to earthly power somehow, that all will be lost. Frankly, it seems... Like the whole world is going to think we are naive fools if we actually live this way. And my goal this morning is not to convince you, oh, that's not true. No, no, no. Listen, if we just do what Jesus says, none of that hard stuff will happen. Right. If we hunger and thirst for righteousness, if we live in more meek ways, if, if we pay careful attention to the purity of our inner life, it's going to be great. This is a kind of false gospel. even. You might call it the men's warehouse heresy of God's kingdom. If you follow Jesus, listen, you're going to love the way you live. Okay? I guarantee it. Maybe not. Maybe not. At least that's not the point here. In fact, the point is quite the opposite. The the, the point is that if we do hunger and thirst for righteousness, church, we may not be satisfied here and now. We may not. The unrighteousness of this world may seem to win. At times, it may be overwhelming even. But it is the heavenly satisfaction of our complete righteousness that makes it worth it to live in this way today. Do you see this? If we do live in more meek ways, we may not have as much to show for it in an earthly sense. We may seem less impressive to others and even be less fulfilled in our day to day lives than we would, seemingly, if we built them around a career, for instance. It's the heavenly promise that someday we will inherit like the earth, the whole thing. It is that promise that makes it worth it. See, if we do live for the kingdom of heaven here on earth, we will seem naive to many, but it is best to be meek. It is best. To be poor in spirit. It is best to hunger and thirst for righteousness, no matter how it goes here on earth. And finally, church, if we live this way, it may seem risky, but the reward will be worth it. It may seem risky. It may seem costly, even. Now here. I wanna focus on the worldview implications of all this. What, What does this all mean for how we as Christians should think about our place in the world at large? One thing I think these Beatitudes should convince us of is that we are not promised a warm reception here on earth. We're not. If we live for this kingdom of heaven, our lives will clash with the world around us And there will be mourning. And there will be poverty of spirit as a result. And this is all understandably very troublesome and terrifying, isn't it? It, Because it starts to feel like to follow this Jesus, we, we have to risk being utterly rejected by the whole world. But one takeaway here is again that we cannot measure the blessedness of our life here on earth based on how warmly we're received by the world around us. We can't do that. Again, it is, it's tempting to think, well, if we just do this right, live like Jesus, right? Well, then of course, people will like us for that, right? They'll appreciate us. I don't, I don't think so, actually. In my view, this is one of the biggest elephants in the room at this moment in history. Uh, it, it seems much clearer to us these days that to follow Jesus, we have to risk being rejected. Uh, we may lose our job or, or not at least advance in the same way in our jobs. We may be sort of ostracized from our families. I've spoken with many of you, and I know that you genuinely do feel the pressure of this risk. You do. It feels like you're walking on eggshells. And in my view, we have basically three options to choose from when it comes to a response. First, we can choose the response of flight, which in general is, is associated often with those on the quote-unquote left in our world who, who run from this risk of rejection by sort of redefining the faith to make it more palatable, right? To convince you, hey, no, 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 it is, it, this is really good. You must, if, if it sounds hard to you, you must have misunderstood it. The error here seems to be an assumption that if we are rejected by the world, that we must be doing it wrong. Or we can choose the response of fight, not flight, but fight, which is often marked by those on the quote-unquote right in our world today. We can get angry even that it's so risky to live this way these days and try to sort of take the nation back. The error here seems to be an assumption that the world really should embrace this way of life. When Jesus seems to be telling us, they just, they just won't. But in light of these beatitudes, again, I think both of these seem misguided. I really do. But you might be thinking, so you're trying to tell me that to follow this Jesus, I have to risk being rejected by every, everybody? Everybody. Everybody. I have to risk being hated and slandered by those who don't live in this way, whether they're liberal or they're conservative. How in the world could that possibly be a good and God-honoring way? That sounds terrible. It sounds terrible. Is this really the life that King Jesus wants for me? Church, as strange as it may seem, and look, I get it. Here's how I think Jesus would respond to that. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. That's the way to do it. That's the blessed life, my friends. They may even crucify you. And here's the crazy thing it's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be awesome, at least in a heavenly sense. Church, it's that last part that we often miss, isn't it? It's going to be awesome. According to Jesus, how should we respond when living for this kingdom goes very poorly for us on earth? Our blessed answer is found right here in verse 12. We should, quote, rejoice and be glad, for our reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before us. Now, listen, does that seem naive to you? Does that seem futile? Does that seem maybe a little risky? I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. But in the end, church, we will finally see the slow and steady really do win the race. Someday, when we see God When we inherit the earth, when we are fully satisfied by his righteousness, someday we will all be certain this really was the best way to live all along. But let's not wait till then. Let's live today as if we are certain of this heavenly promise, no matter how life goes here on earth.